This week, we have a lineup of all listener-submitted questions. We're exploring a couple of different topics, some of which I think maybe can be expanded out into episodes of their own. Thank you to everybody who submitted questions for this week. We're going to try something new today. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tune with a View. So I do appreciate everybody's patience with me. I confess I was a degenerate last week and didn't record, uh, even though I threw up the the question post on Instagram and opened things up. And I do apologize to the majority of Facebook users. I probably should have done it across platforms. I just never got around to it. Um, Unfortunately, one of the realities of working in cultural resource management is that you are at the mercy of your clients. And because I work mostly for municipal, state, and federal governments, the fiscal year ends for them on June 30th. So everybody wants to use their money before they lose it at the end of the year, which means this is my busiest time. So I apologize for not getting to record last week. Um, In addition, thank you to all of you who have been tuning in for the Association for Gravestone Studies online seminar series, which I know I had been advertising it. Uh, We had an incredible turnout. Hundreds of people from across the country was an incredible experience. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I spoke last week and then last night for the third session, I was the moderator. Really big heavy hitters. If you are interested in learning more about different cemeteries across the United States, I will post the link because all of the videos, we did video the Zoom calls, are going to be available on the Association for Gravestone Studies website. Uh, They've already been sending out links, so if you did register, you should have gotten the video via email, but I will post the online link to the AGS website as soon as that's available. So the questions I got were very interesting, Um, and because I could see the majority of people, and I know most of the people who posted the questions, I definitely understand where they're coming from because everybody kind of has their own angle that they're interested in when it comes to cemeteries, whether it's issues of preservation, whether it's issues of history and genealogy. There are lots of people who are interested in just the aesthetics, the beauty and the funerary art. And the questions ranged across basically all of those categories. I'm going to start off with probably the most basic question, and it was for me personally, um, asking about my preferences in terms of my favorite motif on gravestones. This is one (laughs) that honestly I had to sit down and think about. I tend to probably be a little bit pickier than most just because I do go to a lot of cemeteries. I haven't made any secret about my love for bronze. So bronze really are my favorites in terms of material. Um, I'm not particularly picky about what it is. I just think that the way that it ages is really, really spectacular. Secondary to that, I love naturalistic monuments. So when you have simply a boulder or a piece of uncut stone, I think that's really, really striking. And I've seen it done successfully in a number of different ways. I actually saw a beautiful one yesterday Um, in the old Salzburger Cemetery, which is at New Ebenezer, which was one of the first settlements after Georgia was initially settled in the 1730s. 
And it's a very old cemetery, but this was actually a contemporary monument from just five years ago. So I think it's great that there are ways to reimagine in the modern world the, those type of monuments, whereas things like, whether it's polished granite or marble, they can be a little bit dated. Not to say that you can't update certain things, but personally, I think that they don't always translate as well, and it's very easy to spot certain things. Now, that's talking about materials, so that really is cheating, and it's not answering the question. But the fact is, I don't necessarily have a favorite motif. I will say that I know on my personal Instagram recently, I posted some photos that I took at Westview Cemetery in Atlanta. It's actually the largest cemetery in the Southeast, very closely linked with the Candler family who owned Coca-Cola. Actually, um, Asa Candler Jr. was at one point the president. He's the one that built the great mausoleum there. And I've always been kind of mean to Westview because it's very much a 20th century cemetery. It's huge, it's meandering, and there's a lot of very similar monuments that aren't particularly interesting. But I happened to go there last week because I had to take some pictures of the receiving vault um, because the receiving vault is one of the few public memorials I know of to the 1918 epidemic. And while I was there, I, it was a nice day, so I happened to wander up the hill, and I started looking around, and there really are some cool monuments there. So if I had to pick a favorite motif, I loved these headstones that I saw that had pine cones and the, the pine fronds. They were very striking. They were stylized. Um, if I had to guess, most of them were probably from like the 30s, 40s, so they do have a little bit of a deco feel to them but they were just so unusual. And I didn't even have time to look necessarily into the symbolism behind pine. Obviously, Georgia is known for its heart pine. It's one of the things that made Georgia wealthy back in the day. It's one of the reasons that naval stores emerged from Georgia because it was used to make turpentine and ships and things like that. So I did really love those. And I think they're just so unusual. I've never seen anything like it. You see, you know, lots of lilies and other things like that. This is just a more unusual natural motif that I found very striking and I've never seen anywhere else. So I like that one. And in kind of a similar vein, I also am a big fan of wheat sheaves. And they have sort of a similar look to that pine cone and frond. And you will see a lot of late Victorian monuments, particularly for men. Now, if you go back and you listen to the symbolism episode that Ashley and I recorded, you know that wheat is very closely tied to Christian traditions. It goes along with the idea of Christ as the bread of life. But also, it can be a symbol of abundance. Um, you often see wheat sheaves on um, plates and other household items. I think it's just they're, they're aesthetically I find them very pleasing and you see a lot of these earlier granite monuments that just have a very delicate bundle sort of draped across the top. Um, there's one I can think of that I took a picture of in Birmingham that I often go back and look at. So those would be my two favorite motifs. And this was actually a two-part question uh, submitted by Hannah Barber up in Connecticut. The second half was uh, what is the weirdest headstone motif I've seen? And honestly, it's kind of a good thing that I recorded this week and not last week because I happened to see a picture on social media that 
really stopped me in my tracks. Uh, and I will definitely try to share it. Sadly, I follow too many cemetery accounts on Instagram. And so I couldn't find the post, even though I just saw it. Um, but it was actually of a bodybuilder. And it was a larger-than-life, polished granite monument of a bodybuilder, bare-chested. And there's a lot to unpack there. I honestly don't know what to say about it. But I can't even imagine walking through a cemetery and seeing that. I was startled enough seeing a photo of it. If I saw it in real life, you don't like to laugh at anyone's grave marker, but that's a lot. But part of me also kind of admires that person. There's some pride there. I feel like photo portraits, especially now that they have laser etching, can be a little too real, as much as I love old school photoceramics, as you probably can tell because I talk about them a lot. Some of the etchings can be a little weird and a little creepy. This is a personal opinion. Maybe think about our photo choices. Sometimes they don't translate well to the look of etching on a headstone. So that some of the weirder things I've seen on headstones tend to be those type of laser etchings where for whatever reason the photo is too flat and it doesn't really translate to the 2D surface. Um, I can't think of any other really weird ones off the top of my head. I am always taken aback by cars as well. Um, and I actually surveyed a cemetery uh, in Alpharetta, Georgia two weeks ago. And there were two side by side. It was a mom and dad and they, dad had a truck and mom had a car. So they both had vehicles, um, polished gray granite, um, within the last 20 years. I have seen some four truck drivers. I have seen, you know, sort of muscle cars. Cars, I think are a little bit of a weird motif for me too. Um, maybe not for a lot of people, but those tend to stop me in my tracks too because they are also large and very bold and you can definitely spot them across the cemetery. The second question I got um, to take a little bit of a different bent was to ask if I had run across any, and I love this adjective here, neat, um, cemetery archivists. Um, and... The lady who posed this question, her name is um, Lisa Sisko, and I actually met her in the capacity as an archivist. Um, she was one of the archivists working in the Municipal Archives in Savannah, Georgia, and five years ago, I did an internship over the summer in Laurel Grove South Cemetery, which I know I've talked about that. Um, so I thought that, they, and Lisa is so sweet, and I love that she uses the word neat, so I, I will give a shout out there. This is a hard question. And the first thing I would love to say is I wish there were more cemetery archivists. The reality, unfortunately, is that many cemeteries either cannot afford them or the archivist position is held by someone who is either a volunteer or rolled in with something else. Um, it's always interesting to me to see where cemetery records end up. Often it is at a local historical society. Most times it is not with the cemetery itself, especially if the cemetery doesn't have a physical office, which most cemeteries don't, unfortunately. Um, outside of rural cemeteries uh, and some memorial parks, I have not had the opportunity to. 
it's been very interesting because over this whole experience of the seminar series that I've been doing, I, I ran across some heavy hitters. So we had folks um, from the city of New Orleans, Emily, who you guys know. We had uh, Ashlyn Werner, who is the director of cemeteries in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, we had the CEO of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill in Philadelphia. We had the assistant director of Graceland in Chicago. We had the vice president of Greenwood in Brooklyn. And we had the director of the Forest Lawn Memorial Park Museum. So those are all cemeteries that have been talked about on this podcast. They're all really big players. And the most interesting thing that I found was that talking to them, none of these cemeteries, even the big rural cemeteries like Laurel Hill and Greenwood, they don't have the same operating structure. So how they handle their history and how they preserve history, it can be completely different even though they are very similar institutions. I know that when I was doing my thesis research, probably the closest that I came to meeting a quote-unquote archivist um, was a woman by the name of Deborah Hogan. And I could never tell if it was actually a paid position or if it was a volunteer position. She never really told me. Um, But she handled the history at Swan Point Cemetery in Providence, Rhode Island, where I did my research. And I can seem to recall she didn't have an email address that was linked to the cemetery. And I know that she worked developing education programs to do with, like, not gardening, but sort of ecology for school children in Massachusetts. So she had a day job. This was something that she did one day a week. I think she was only there on Tuesdays. But she did certainly have, you know, this ambition to get things archivally preserved. And I think that that's the case for most cemeteries is that they've got a guy or they've got a girl and that falls to them. And in some cases, they have to turn to another repository. So, for example, I know Oakland Cemetery here in Atlanta, which Marcy Breffel, their director of education, was also on one of our seminars. And, of course, where Ashley works. You guys know Ashley. Oakland's records, and Oakland, of course, is a city park in Atlanta as well, they actually are at the Atlanta History Center. So they are no longer in Oakland's possessions. And I think that sometimes cemeteries do have to give up their records to ensure a higher level of quality. Now, in some cases, when the city is involved, you can also have cemetery records are well-preserved because there happens to be a municipal archive, something like Savannah. At the end of the day, there's just so much variation that I wish I could say that that's a job, and it is. And it's one of those things that as somebody who's very interested in cemeteries, I'm always impressed to meet people who have been able to get jobs in them. I remember a young lady that I had run across. um, We used to run into each other at, like, mixers when I belonged to the Young Friends of the Preservation Alliance in Philadelphia. And she had a degree in historic preservation, and she ended up working for the Woodlands in Philadelphia. But she was more of an event planner, because they had a lot of weddings at the mansion there and things like that. It's a weird niche. And obviously, if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know it's a weird niche and that cemeteries kind of have their own following. Um, 
I do hope in the future, and I think cemeteries definitely are going to think about this. One of the things that came up last night was maybe talking about how we can maximize grants and use grant writing to get some of these big preservation projects taken care of. And I think that that's a very compelling idea because I know Lisa Alpert, who is the, the vice president uh, of marketing and programming at Greenwood, said that they had gotten a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to digitize all of their burial books, which I know most cemeteries have these big bound ledgers that record their deaths. And I thought that was a fantastic idea. Make it digital, make it searchable. And that's a way that we can permanently archivally protect things by digitizing them. So I think it's definitely something that needs to be explored, something that has a huge future. But honestly, I can't say I have met many neat cemetery archivists. The next question I had was about adopting cemeteries. And this is a huge preservation issue. And I feel like at first, <laughs> I was very frustrated by this question because I was like, no, don't do it. And it may have been because one of my friends from AGS had posted a picture on social media earlier that day about a new material that had come on the market, which comes in multiple colors, but it's like a flex form. And they had chosen to make a 19th century marble marker more legible by using this flex form material to join two broken pieces together, and it happened to be black. So essentially they kind of spray painted this white marble stone black to make it easier to read. And I saw most of the cemetery world in tears over this. Um, and it looks like they are going to be able to restore the stone. The big thing I fear about encouraging people to go out and adopt cemeteries is that for the most part, people don't know how to. Now, I think that cemetery cleanups are fantastic. And I think it's a great way to get companies or organizations that want to volunteer involved. And it's a good first step. But I can tell you that nature takes its course. Six months after you do that cleanup, the cemetery is probably gonna look very similar particularly if it's in an area where it gets a lot of foot traffic, people are throwing trash, or if there are a lot of trees, which is most cemeteries. That's not to say that you should never try to rescue a cemetery. The majority of cemetery preservation is done by well-meaning individuals. What you need is training. Now, there are a lot of resources online. So, for example, I know one of our AGS members, Holly Hope, who works for the SHPO in Arkansas, recently put out a YouTube video talking about the proper way to clean headstones. And we've talked a lot about that on this podcast. Cemetery repairs, things like that. So when it comes to adopting cemeteries, like the first thing would be, you know, educate yourself. Buy a copy of the Cemetery Preservation Primer um, by Lynn, I think it's Strangard. There are a million copies out there used. It's a very good resource. Look to the National Preservation Institute. Look to the Association for Gravestone Studies. There are plenty of resources out there to help you get the knowledge that you need. Secondly, and this is the biggest thing, 
100%. I cannot tell you how many cemeteries that I have been asked to look into, do research on, volunteer with, that have had probably 15 groups that have tried to, quote unquote, save them over the years. And guess what? It's a big time commitment. It is. I look at just producing three Zoom calls and how much time it took me over the past couple of weeks. So I am not criticizing anybody by any means. People's lives are busy. They don't have a full-time job's worth of energy to put into a volunteer project like cleaning up a cemetery. However, I would encourage you, if you, say, have a cemetery in your neighborhood that you're looking to restore, think long-term. It's not enough just to clean it up. It's not enough just to repair the stones. What are you going to do to ensure that 10 years down the road, if those stones get damaged or if those repairs fail, they will be able to be fixed? It's not enough just to clean it up. Are you going to be able to mow the lawn for the next 25 years? Are you willing to spend the money to get somebody else to mow the lawn? If you're organizing a friends group, you know, who's going to be the point person? All of these things unfortunately, are a reality. Now, I will give an example now, and I would love to get them on the show because they are just delightful. The gurus that I have seen who are doing this better than basically anybody else that I've ever seen um, are actually a couple by the name of Carlo and Betty Mucucci. It's Mencucci, M-E-N-C-U-C-C-I. And um, they live in Barbell, Rhode Island. And they are absolutely adorable. So Carlo and Betty are in their early 60s. They are both retired now. They've always definitely been outdoorsy. You know, if you know where Barbell is in Western Rhode Island, it's, it's definitely off the map. It's Western Rhode Island is entirely different than the more urban eastern part. Um, they live in a log cabin they built themselves. So these are handy people. But what they did was they took a couple of stone conservation workshops and they learned they're members of AGS. And they had gotten involved because I guess there was a cemeteries commission in their town who started off looking for cemeteries. There's something like 130 historic cemeteries in just that one town. And I know I've talked about this aspect of Rhode Island before. The fact that for a very small state, there are lots of these little family cemeteries. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Rhode Island was sort of the Wild West in the colonial period, where this was where all the dissenters went. So there was not a central church. There was not the central burial ground on the town common the way that there was in other New England states. And Quite frankly, there are a lot of people who were not religious at all. So I think that this explains the number of family cemeteries in Rhode Island because people just did their own thing. So Carlo and Betty have, you know, sort of single-handedly taken on the challenge of restoring a lot of these small cemeteries. And not only are they doing the cleanup, not only are they doing the repair work, and a lot of it they take home with them. I saw a picture of one of these headstones that they were repairing, and I think I told this story before, um, that was just laying on the ground in front of their Christmas tree with all the presents around it because it was the only place that they could spread it out where it was going to be warm enough during a New England winter to get it to cure properly. But they also have been very smart about the idea of long-term maintenance. 
where when they go in, if they see, say, problematic tree branches, well, they get them out of there now versus saying, oh, well, we'll deal with that when it falls 10 years from now. They're trying to look long-term. And most importantly, they have found a strain of grass that does not grow beyond a couple of inches, which cuts down the need for long-term mowing. If there is one expense that bankrupts the most cemeteries, it is going to be upkeep and maintenance of grounds. And so especially for a small cemetery, and I've seen this grass, it's lovely and kind of lush. It's like a carpet. And it's a little bit more expensive to install up front. But I think especially if you're dealing with a small cemetery, it's a smart investment to make. If you're going to put your money somewhere, in the long run, it's going to keep it looking good and it's going to keep it well-preserved because without grass in a cemetery, you have issues with erosion, you have issues with damage to stones. So that grass is actually going to be a benefit and it's going to help you in the long run. And if you don't have to worry about mowing it, just an added bonus. I think that cemetery adoption and planning that out, and I talked a little bit in the episode on master plans about this, It's a bigger issue. It could definitely be an episode all to itself. Um, But that gives you kind of an overview of just some of the things to consider. I would never discourage somebody from adopting a cemetery, but I also am not going to lie that it's not a challenge. And I can say this even, you know, with some of the work that I've done on preservation and the project I'm working on right now in Buckhead, the Mount Olive AME Cemetery there which Buckhead Heritage is now trying to restore, and I'm on the committee that's trying to do that, we're probably the fifth or sixth group that's tried to do that in less than 50 years. And people just move on. They lose momentum. It's difficult, and it's often expensive, which is why having a registered nonprofit is often to your benefit. Um, I know not everybody lives in a community as wealthy as Buckhead, uh, but just practically speaking, especially if you're looking to take on a smaller project, you're going to have less costs and it's going to benefit you in the long run if you have an organized friends group. Okay, and I won't lie, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a sad clown, but uh, I didn't get that many questions, so I'm going to go with the last question, which I think is a very good one. And this question came from uh, my friend Victoria, uh, who runs the fabulous Archive Atlanta podcast. And I think this is by far the most relevant in terms of looking forward. And she asked if I thought that Americans would ever adopt alternative burial traditions along the lines of green burials, which is something that I really have not talked about a lot so I'm, I'm glad she asked it because it, it forced me to do a little bit of research. And I tend to read articles every now and then. I can remember my mother cut one out of the paper and sent it to me when one of the local cemeteries in the town where I grew up put in a green section. The short answer is yes. I 100% think that this will happen. And this is going to happen for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's no secret that the majority of older cemeteries, if they have not already tapped out their resources, they will. You know, they're predicting, at least in cities, that within probably the next 35 to 40 years, room for traditional in-ground burials is going to be gone. And I think people already see this. 
in the past decade, so the, I, my numbers are from 2018, so it's not the most current, but it's pretty close. So in 2018, 53% of Americans were choosing cremation over traditional in-ground burial, which was a jump of almost 20% from the decade before. So in 2008, you were talking about 34% of Americans choosing cremation. And I can remember back when I was a teacher a million years ago, we used to have a career day. And one of the most popular ones was actually the local funeral home would come and they would bring the hearse and the kids could see the hearse. And I remember that they, they had little tongue-in-cheek humor. They had actual cremains so that kids could see what a cremated body looked like. And they used to store it in a salsa jar and it was hot salsa. So a little dad humor there. But they talked about how, in terms of pre-need planning, and I would say that this was maybe, maybe 10 years ago now, because it's, it's been a while, but they were saying that they had four filing cabinets, this particular funeral home. And of those four cabinets, they had one drawer of one cabinet that was for traditional in-ground burials. The rest of the drawers were all for cremations. So there definitely is a shift in favor of cremation. However, cremation is not a new concept, obviously. It goes back thousands of years. In terms of popularity in the United States, it certainly has gained popularity throughout the 20th century. I know I've talked a little bit about Bohemian National Cemetery in Chicago and how they were really pioneers in changing attitudes. But until relatively recently, even cremation was questionable. I know the Catholic Church for a long time was very against it. Obviously, traditional Jewish burials still do not allow cremation. However, I think increasingly, the second issue that we have to consider in terms of adopting new burial traditions is the fact that I think many Americans in particular. And I'm not looking into other countries because we tend tend to talk about American cemeteries, but other countries, it's it's far more extreme. They definitely have caught on to this idea before us. Here in the United States, I think people are very concerned about sustainability. And in-ground burial, in many ways, is not sustainable. And not just because we are running out of space in cemeteries. Um, And I know it's often cited, but I think it's worth um, quoting um, Chris, I think it's Coots, C-O-U-T-T-S, Uh, He is a professor of urban and regional planning at Florida State University, and he broke down what the American funeral industry uses every year. So it's enough wood for 2,300 single-framed family houses, uh, sufficient steel for 15 Eiffel Towers, and essentially enough embalming fluid to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool, to say nothing of the concrete that goes into concrete burial vaults, which... Some of it is breaking down, but honestly, not much of it. I always use the example of Medgar Evers, the civil right, the early civil rights martyr, um, who was buried, and then later in the early 90s, they finally brought the, the men who murdered him to justice, but they had to exhume his body to study his remains and study the trajectory of the bullet that had killed him and all those things, and, you know, At that point, close to 30 years after his death, he was still almost perfectly preserved. And that tells you a lot about embalming and why it might not be sustainable and it's definitely not green. 
That's not to say that I don't understand why people embalm. I certainly do. The other issue, though, is people ask, well, is cremation really a greener option? And arguably, no, because it definitely has a huge impact in terms of carbon footprint. The amount of CO2 that is released, both from using natural gas to power a crematory and just in terms of waste from the body and other byproducts, particularly more and more since we are carrying a lot of heavy metals in our bodies. People are arguing that even cremation isn't that great. Now, first of all, what is green burial? So green burial is no embalming fluid, no casket, no burial vault. There are a couple of options. Generally, it is either a shroud, traditional just wrapping in a shroud made of something like linen that is biodegradable, or I have seen wicker caskets. Again, things that are going to, if you've ever sat in a wicker chair that's been sitting out on somebody's patio for a couple of years, you know that wicker breaks down pretty quickly. And these are placed in either sections of cemeteries that are dedicated to green burials, or in some cases, full-blown green burial grounds, which often are treated as nature preserves. So there are no markers, or they're very limited markers. Sometimes they're placed on trees and things like that, nameplates on trees. Now, the first challenge is, is that it, this is still an idea that's catching on. I think it has grown. Um, I can remember, those of you who might have watched the television show Six Feet Under, which ended in 2005, um, towards the end of the show, green burial definitely becomes an issue. And the family in that show lived in Los Angeles, and it definitely had already caught on. And there was a green burial ground that they could go to, and they, they used in the show. You can definitely see that this is a trend that starts out west and is moving east. If you look, and there is a Green Burial Society who is a nonprofit that is trying to promote green burial and has lots of resources if you are interested in that type of thing. I can certainly put the, the link in the show notes. They list approved, I guess there are some guidelines that they use for actually how these are set up and how they operate. They are across the country now. So green burial, I think, is growing. The thing that stops people, there are a couple of things. First of all, if you're going to have a nature preserve type piece of land, you're going to have to have a lot of land. And you're going to have to buy it generally somewhere that is fairly remote. For a couple of reasons. First of all, with no burial vaults, you need to space burials out a little bit more. That way you're not encroaching on previous graves. Which before, if you start digging and you hit a concrete burial vault, well, clearly you were digging too close. Not to say that concrete burial vaults don't fail, it happens all the time, but just to be safe. But secondly, if you're looking for that true nature preserve look, if you are open fields, beautiful forests, you have to go into more remote areas. So the question is, well, is your family going, if they want to visit you, are they willing to drive 50, 100 miles, maybe to a different state? The cost, I mean, it does depend. It depends on the region that you're in. Uh, it is traditionally a little bit cheaper than um, conventional burial. 
All of these things I think are very important to take into consideration in terms of why people might be reluctant to choose that. Now, to be devil's advocate, some cemeteries are also trying to use land that maybe was not as useful before for green burials. And I know that I've talked about this before, that Mount Auburn is taking old walking paths and using those for single green burials that don't allow a marker. Again, you'd have a marker on a tree. I don't think that that's a bad route to go, especially if people are exploring it and they might want to go to a more prestigious cemetery. I mean, granted, in Mount Auburn, they probably are still going to price most people out but it's, it's a consideration. And I think that the idea of having a green versus traditional space in many cemeteries, I think that's going to help people transition because not everybody is going to be willing to drive 100 miles to see their loved one at a separate nature preserve. But you know what? People choose military cemeteries. And military cemeteries, which I hope to do a whole series of episodes on those, those are not always conveniently located close to folks. Sometimes they do have to drive. Generally, there's one within 100 miles of everybody in the United States. But people for the prestige and for the associations for military burials often do choose a national cemetery. If people are willing to consider that, they might do the same thing for green burials. I think time will tell, but it's definitely growing. Um, and the last thing... <laughs> This one's kind of interesting, um, and I, I hope that the FBI handler who looks at my internet searches doesn't judge me too harshly, um, but I was looking into the idea of natural organic reduction of human bodies. Um, so either they think I'm looking to murder somebody and dump the body, or I'm just a nerd. Um, so natural organic reduction is something that I had heard of in a very general sense, but didn't know that much about. So this was actually pioneered by a young lady who went to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst by the name of Katrina Spade. And she is looking into the idea of natural organic reduction, which was actually practiced already by farmers who have to deal with livestock that have died. And essentially what it does is it accelerates the decomposition of a body through mixing with other substances that have been shown, like I said, by natural methods of disposing of livestock, things like wood chips and straw, different organic materials which are mixed with the body, and then through a process known as alkaline hydrolysis, which is called aquamation, biocremation, um, flameless cremation, or water cremation, is essentially using water plus lye, which, if you know anything about soap making, lye has been used for a long time um, for that purpose, and heat to break down the body quicker and it essentially turns it into soil and part of it is through mixing with these other organic materials and if you if you search this online you can definitely find pictures they're holding handfuls of this and it, it looks to me like mulch um 
It is more expensive than traditional cremation, but it uses far less energy and it doesn't have the same CO2 release. Um, It's an interesting idea. A lot of people have called this composting, um, which it's not exactly that. Uh, I mean, I guess in the sense of like wood chips and alfalfa and straw, which it's similar to nitrogen fixation in plants. Um, this, it, believe me, decomposition is important. If we didn't have decomposition, we would all be buried in fallen leaves. This is something that does happen naturally. It's just accelerating the process. Um, so Spade owns a company called Recompose. Um, and not surprisingly, it started on the West Coast. So it starts uh, at Washington State University, where they actually had six folks who donated their bodies who specifically wanted to be part of this study that they used as a case study. Um, and it certainly was successful. The biggest challenge is a few things. So first of all, the majority of state laws say that a body needs to be disposed of by either traditional burial or cremation. And it does not necessarily allow for things other than that. However, getting alkaline hydrolysis legalized, so there at this point it is actually legal in 19 states. Um, and it sort of has filtered through. It's Washington, it's California, it's Colorado. I hate to say it, the more liberal states. Um, but still, it's interesting because I had read um, some quotes from lawmakers who still, when this was an issue where they were going to basically amend their funerary laws, where a lot of people were calling it things like undignified or gross and disgusting. And I think it's because they don't understand the chemical process behind it. Um, the same way that cremation is essentially speeding up the decomposition process, this is doing the same thing. It's just doing it with water and organic material as opposed to fire. Um, the, the funniest one I read was from a state senator in Washington where he said the image that they have is that you're going to toss Uncle Henry out in the backyard and cover him with food scraps. Um, make sure you turn him with a pitchfork once a week. Um, it's interesting. Um, I'm not sure how quickly this will catch on. I feel like it's a nice trendy thing, and I know that there was a big push for the same thing where they were using human bodies essentially as the root system for trees, essentially where a tree grows out of you. I think this is a slightly more approachable tactic than that, where essentially at the end you end up with nest, like near two wheelbarrows full of organic matter, and you can do whatever you want with it. So if you want to bring it out to maybe not a national park, I don't know if they're going to let you into Yosemite with your human dirt, but if you wanted to take it to a local park, if you wanted to use it in your garden, if you wanted to use it in pots around your house, you could use those human remains for, the same way you would use traditional potting soil. This is all things that have happened roughly within the past year. So this is still a very new idea, but it's one that I think is getting a lot of press and, and justifiably so. I think, and maybe it's my generation, but I know a lot of people when the, the whole idea of using your body as the roots for the tree came out, 
I must have seen, you know, probably 50 people I knew who had posted it on social media because they were excited about it because they don't want to go the traditional route. And for a long time, cremation was the only other alternative, but now they're starting to see other options. I think that there's definitely more options and I think the options are growing. I think with the next generation, because I will say that even, I was very surprised um, when my grandfather died, he was a, he was a died in the wool Catholic. And I would have thought he would have been the first to go for traditional burial, but he went for direct cremation. And I know that my grandmother is planning on doing the same thing, which, you know, when not that long ago, it was completely taboo in the Catholic church. I think that, you know, my grandparents who were born in the twenties and thirties for them, to have chosen cremation shows a progression. And I think that probably the baby boomer generation is already starting to reconsider their options and they're not necessarily gonna choose traditional burial. And if they choose cremation or if they start to choose green burial, I think that by the time millennials have to make burial choices, there's definitely gonna be some changes. Hopefully that answered your question, Victoria. Um, so thank you to everybody who, who put those questions in. I know this is going to be a little bit on the shorter side for today's episode, um, but if people had only submitted more questions, um, I know everybody's busy. I certainly am. Looking forward, uh, I kind of, I have a couple of things I want to explore. Uh, I, in my frenzy over the past few weeks, did not realize that this Monday was Memorial Day. So I, I, <laughs> I did miss that window, um, but I do want to start doing some, some military cemetery stuff. Um, which I know we touched a little bit on that on part two of the Mortuary Railroads episode. Um, but I think there's a lot of really good stuff there. Um, and I didn't necessarily want to do another anniversary. Uh, I do know that this past week was the 40th anniversary of Mount St. Helens, but I confess volcanoes are one of the things that absolutely terrify me. And so I started to do the research on it and got scared. So then I had to watch a funny TV show and not do it. So, um, so I'm going to skip the anniversary episodes for the next couple of weeks. And, uh, I think maybe we're going to, we're going to start to explore the history of military cemeteries here in the United States, not necessarily just because of Memorial day, but because I think it's going to be fruitful. Um, I, I do desperately hope and dream that soon I will be able to do more interviews. Having been on so many zoom calls lately, I'm definitely thinking about using it because I know you can just get the zoom audio file so I'm considering it um, but I certainly would like to do that if I can but either way as always uh, thank you for your ratings and reviews uh, since everybody's home now would be a great time to rate and review Tomb of the View uh, on whatever listening platform uh, it is the number one most helpful thing that you can do to make me and my podcast more visible so I do appreciate that um, as always, www.tombwithaview.weebly.com, tombwithaviewpodcast at gmail.com if you want to reach out and get in contact. Or, of course, follow along on social media, Facebook, Tomb with a View Podcast, and on Instagram at tomb period with period a period view. For now, I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb with a View. Mm-hmm.